And now, coming to you live from the two socially distant Coach Street, Coach Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand, Gary K. Wolf on the Coach Street Podcast. I don't know why we I don't know why we're not getting some support from the Motel 6 people, but maybe maybe they don't think we're doing them any any favors. Uh, anyway, uh, today as we as we were recording, as we were recording, it is the fourth of July. Uh, without fireworks, although I went up on the roof of my building, fireworks are illegal in Chicago. The lakefront is shut down. All the spectacular speculators gone, but I could see in the distance little puffs of fireworks in the suburbs. So I got to celebrate uh, the the Fourth of July at a distance of I'm going to say about 15 miles, and fireworks at that distance look charmingly cute. They don't look explosive. They don't. They, they they just like little little puffs of pink and white and blue. Kind of like the rest of the real world, really. Okay, like the rest it. of the real world, exactly. Well, we don't need to start off again by talking about how much of a dystopia we're in and how it's going to change. No, no, let's not. Uh, you know, uh, though I have to say for a moment, I did think, given it's the 4th of July, you know, was it attractive to have a metaphor available to you that saw you, you 15 miles away from the United States? <clears throat> but we'll leave that alone, shall we? <laughs> we'll just let that go. Um, okay. So how are you? How's your, 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 your life, your world, the science fictional universe you're in? Um, it's, it's actually doing well and I don't want to complain about any, well, actually I can complain about things I've been reading because no one listening to this will actually be able to, to triangulate and figure out when I'm reviewing or not reviewing certain books. But I have this, um, uh, interesting habit of, uh, when, when, when your, your, your life is sort of divided between books that you need to review because they need to be covered for locus. This is your fault because you're the reviews editor and you and Liza make me review these things. Actually, that's not true. But there are books that ought to be reviewed. And there are books that I like, I look forward to reading. And then there are books that I don't need to review right now that might not be out for four or five or six months. But I want to take a peek at them. And then I take a (laughs) peek at them. And then I get sucked into them. And I've discovered that there's an element of my reading which is just pure snobbery. Uh, <laughs> don't laugh. This is this is serious. No, no, I I think it's entirely accurate. Yeah. So, what are you <laughs> snobbish don't agree about? Agree with me either. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, what is it that's been snobbish for you lately, Gary? Okay, um, there are writers who write so well, not not similar to each other, but who write so well in their respective wheelhouses that once I start reading them, I just really enjoy what they're doing. Um, yeah. One of them uh, who is uh, actually, this, this is something I will be reviewing in a forthcoming issue of Locus. One of them is M. John Harrison. Um, M. John Harrison has played in a a very important role going back to the new wave era. He played a very important role in the reinvention of the space opera during that period with the Kefahuchi track sequence. He's written some uh, stunning short fiction. Uh, he's written uh, some sort of mainstream kind of oddball, uh, Arthur, almost Arthur Machen-like novels in terms of the subject matter, uh, like The Course of the Heart. And he's got a new novel out called The Sunken Land Begins to Rise Again, which is just absolutely fascinating on a sentence-by-sentence level. Uh, I should mention for people who've seen the title and might have visions of some George Powell movie with Atlantis erupting from the waves of the Atlantic. With No, it's not that at all. 
Well, no, I mean, well, as uh, Adam Roberts mentions in his review on his blog, mm -hmm. the title comes from Kingsley Amos. Uh, no, it does not come from King. It comes from Charles Kingsley. Oh, they're all the same. They're just old English Char writers. I don't care. I Char Charles Kingsley Amos, the famous writer of, uh, of, of, of <laughs> Lucky Jim and the Water Babies. Uh, yes. I'm ready for Lucky... No, I'm really not. That would be so weird. It would no. be very weird, but... No Lucky Jim and the Water Babies, Gary. But anyway, yeah. Okay. Yes, yes, but, uh, to, to Charles Kingsley Amos, it's like people used to... Somebody dedicated a book once to Bertrand and Jane Russell. Uh, and I thought, okay... That's pretty much in the same genre. No, see, that sounds like a Philip K. Dick or Jonathan Leatham, Jonathan Leatham story. Well, it could very well be because Philip K. Dick and Jonathan Leatham are of, 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 a, of, a, of a piece in that sense. But Charles Kingsley, author of what was once one of the most widely read Victorian fairy tales, The Water Babies, uh, and it's not so widely read. It's never been as widely read in the United States, probably not in Australia as it was in the UK. But it, my understanding is kids growing up for the last hundred years would read the water babies at some point. And it's, it's yeah. a weird story. It's one I read when I was studying Victorian fairy tales because it's partly uh, an argument against child labor. It's partly a fairy tale about kids who drown and turn into water babies and return to the earth. And it's partly a defensive Darwinian evolution. It's just all kinds of odd things. Um, and the same Charles Kingsley was a kind of amateur naturalist. He was a big supporter of Darwin. And he wrote an essay called, I think, uh, Notes from a Gravel Pit. And, yeah. and in his essay, Notes from a Gravel Pit, he talks about uh, the sunken land will rise again and fall and rise. And he's talking about kind of a, a, a geological process. He's not really talking about uh, continents erupting from the sea. And none of that has terribly much to do with what happens in Mike Harrison's novel anyway. My point about Mike Harrison's novel, uh, or M. John Harrison, excuse me, is that you start reading his sentences, the way he describes his characters, the way he, sentence by sentence, I just love reading his sentences. Uh, his characters are not- I guess what I'd ask you, I guess what I'd ask you, uh, and I apologize for interrupting, is this. Hmm. For a lot of readers, the idea, of, well, the, the description of a book as mm -hmm. being great on a sentence-by-sentence sentence le level seems almost toxic. It's kind of this sort of, it can. well, it's not a very good story, it's not very engaging, but it's pretty in some kind of jewel-like way. But that's not really this, is it? No, pretty is not the word I would use here at all. Uh, plot is not the most central thing, but, uh, but, but the relationship of character to environment, which ought to be a central theme of science fiction, and in some ways is, is very much a central theme in this. There are fantastic things happening in it. England is changing, is transforming. Strange sort of fish-like creatures appear. There's a, uh, a village that this woman moves to in Shropshire. Is the people, everybody there seems obsessed with this Charles Kingsley children's book. So there are implications that science fiction is going on around the edges of the narrative. But the narrative is about these two people who are completely disconnected from their lives. And those are very characteristic uh, M. John Harrison characters. I, th I think yeah. about Light, Light, for example, which I think is one of the great recent space operas, has one character in it who's a, a, a 20th century character who's a serial killer. And the other yeah. major character is a, is, is, a, is a starship captain who dumps her entire crew into outer space because she's irritated at them. 
Um, True. So, so there's a there, there, there's a sense of writing about really uh, ske- sketchy characters in a way that makes you utterly fascinated with them. Um, True. We, we probably do need to address the issue of recent in your statement about light, though. You know, as a best recent space opera from. 18 years ago. 18 years ago, yeah. Oh. <laughs> recent, recent space opera, meaning that it's a lot more recent than Doc Smith. Everything's more recent than Doc Smith, Gary. We're, we're, we're past the centenary of Skylark. That raises another interesting question. Where are we in terms of the history of science fiction? If somebody in the year 2100 writes a history of science fiction, and let's say they arbitrarily decide to start with they could start with Frankenstein. They could start with Wells and Verne, or they could start with 1926 and um, and the uh, beginning of the science fiction marketing category. I guess are we in uh, a period that is? It's, it's way too late to call this post new wave. It's way too late to call this post 1980s or post cyberpunk. We can't call ourselves post new space opera because that sounds just stupid. Um, what are we in? Are we in an era of science fiction now? I mean, uh, oh, oh, okay. I don't, okay, for, okay, my rational, my most rational response to that is I don't think we could possibly say it right now because I don't think we have that distinctive explosive work that has come along that seems to like herald something. You know, if you look back generally, there's a, a, like a some kind of a, an explosive group of books that come out right at the particular time and there's a real change in what's on pa- on the page and also i mean while sometimes you get hot young people running around declaring new mm. ages or whatever else it is that hasn't happened as convincingly yet i think there's a lot of hot young people running around declaring things but they haven't coalesced into a definitive thing beyond that we are if you like the the new new world because we have the whole world of science fiction now and we're trying to embrace all the voices on our planet how, however diverse and whatever else now, now that's that's a thing and it's an important mm-hmm. thing and it changes the faces that you see in the stories that you read as well as the voices that you're listening to and where they come from but i don't know if that yet coheres into an age i mean we are in the you know 21st century science fiction, mm. the, the post-millennial science fiction or something. But as much as, I mean, you can see that, that at the begin, at the end of the 90s or the early 2000s, there is that twin stream of the new space opera and the new weird. Right, yeah. And probably that's the last time that I've seen a really clear, definitive new movement you know arise beyond this if you will new world you know it's like you know when uh peter gabriel started okay. real world records and everything was about world music right you could maybe begin to construct an argument that we're living through the equivalent of that well you're living we're living through the equivalent of that in the sense of the kind of um demographics and the kind of psychological landscape of science fiction in other words uh, and I did this series of lectures, which is now four, four years old or something, uh, called How Great Science Fiction Works, which was not my title. And I had to come up with some kind of a term for what we're in now. And I think I, I use some term like the age of diversity. We're in the age of world science fiction. We're getting 
uh, perspectives from literally all over the world. We're getting perspectives from African science fiction and South Asian science fiction and Southeast Asian science fiction and, um, and so forth and so on. Um, but that's really a description of the um, external parameters of the genre, who writes it, who publishes. It's great that yeah. science fiction now takes place in, 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 in Bangladesh or in Nepal or in India or in Nigeria or or at least it always has, and we're aware of it, right? But, yeah, it, it's always. But but the fiction itself, sometimes this is uh, familiar science fiction ideas treated through different cultural lenses, and I've always thought this is a good thing because when you expand yeah. the cultural range of science fiction, you reinvent all of science fiction. So, for example, sure. Nettie Okorafor or Tade Thompson can write what are essentially alien invasion novels. Uh, and, and, and set them in Nigeria. And that changes the whole nature, nature of an alien invasion novel. Of course, because you're changing the nature of the response within the story to what's happening. Exactly. You know, I guess what I'd say in this is if we're, if we're going to try and label it, because in our previous podcast together, we talked about how maybe we're living through a golden age. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a kind of irritatingly stupid, annoying thing, but mostly because it tends not to be terribly meaningful in the moment and it tends to get applied to lazily and all those sort of things. But let's say that. Now, when my youngest daughter was about one and a half, her sister handed down to her a little plush doll that she loved called Pinky. And Pinky, mm -hmm. right, Pinky got old and saggy and horrible, but, but Sophie still loved Pinky, so we got her a new one, thinking we could just swap them out. Oh. No, she 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 no no she held on to the first one but she loved the second one just as much oh it became wonderful. it became new pinky she had pinky and new pinky and then we gave her another one and she had pinky and new pinky and new new pinky and, and, and eventually i kid you not at about by about five she had pinky new pinky new new pinky new 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 pinky and new 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 pinky right and you think well that's crazy but that's kids you know we're living in we're living in the new 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 golden age well, it could be, or we could be just living in a lot of different pinkies. In other words, if you take pinky as as a kind of thematic literary thing, what I'm saying is this: uh, Oh, we're talking about we're talking about pinkies now. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. My point is that's that it's great that science fiction has diversified in terms of nationality, in terms of gender, in terms of uh, every way that I, humans can identify themselves now have access to science fiction, or at least have better access to science fiction than they did, mm -hmm. they did before. That doesn't mean that the themes of science fiction are different. In other words, we don't have, I think, a shift into something like cyberspace, which we had in the 80s, or nanospace, which we probably had in the 90s. The kinds of things that look like thematic revolutions in science fiction, when Greg Egan came along, for example, when Hanu mm -hmm. Ryanyemi came along with, 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 with various kinds of advanced... Uh, uh, information structures and nanotech information structures that seem to be shifting into a different area. Uh, yeah. I don't see that kind of shift going on right now. I don't. See I don't know if I completely agree. I don't think it's as stark or dramatic. I think when Neuromancer came along, first of all, it came along four years into a movement. That's true. Second of all, it came with a flushed new generation of people putting out stories so, mm. so i mean yes neuromancer was the most startling book of its time right at that moment in many ways but it came alongside schismatrix and it came alongside in the drift and it came alongside the wild shore right there was a generation of change and there was that whole 
argument at the time between the what were the new romantics and the postmoderns or whatever they called themselves right. then, right? And there's not exactly that. But what you're seeing is when you when you get texts like say uh, Chosen Spirits, which is the Summit Basu novel that came out a little while hmm. ago. Or when you get stuff like uh, the stuff that Saad Hussain is doing in the Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday yeah. and his forthcoming uh, piece, uh, Kunda Wakes Up, uh, where you get this sense of the rest of the world in the story. And it's not just like in that, there's, there's a thing where when we talk about inclusion, where it can seem superficial or it's seen as being to our own benefit as readers, right? But what you get is you get a different, I mean, you're talking about different approach, that different right. approach to story, that different sense of the character, the protagonist's likely fate in the story is really important. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. Kondo wakes up by Saad Hussain. It's not out yet. won't be out till hopefully next year sometime. But in it, you have a protagonist who is living in a place where they accept that the place they're in is going to suffer the worst of what's happening in the world. And they accept that as a given, mm -hmm. you know, if you compare that to New York 2140, where you, the given is that you will struggle till the end of time to save Manhattan, no matter what you, you do, right. You know, you are going to build billion dollar walls around it or trillion dollar walls around it. You're going to push to keep back the ocean so that this cultural and economic icon is preserved. That's not what someone living necessarily in Bangalore thinks is going to happen. Right. They figure based on, reasonable assessment that, that the, the West will leave them to go to, 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 to sink beneath the waves um, and no one will come to save them because no one comes to save them. And that's a whole different mindset. And it, that it, kind of yeah. And it's a different mindset in terms of perspective. And this is, this is why I finally uh, replaced my usage of the term, the age of diversity, which is still a very useful term with the idea of what I'm calling the age of perspective, because what you're talking about, isn't necessarily, it, it, it's certainly something which has been pioneered by writers from uh, uh, countries that are more likely to be victimized by climate change than the, than the industrialized countries. But what you also, also described, and this is not too much of a spoiler for people who haven't had a chance to read it, is that the, the forthcoming um, novel by um, Kim Stanley Robinson begins with exactly this disaster of a heat wave killing yeah. millions of people in India. Um, it's something that Indian writers have pointed out, I'm sure, to us and to Stan and so on. But Stan recognizes that. And it's a horrifying, absolutely terrifying opening chapter. Um, it is. And, and it's partly terrifying because you end up convinced this is maybe science fiction now, but it's probably going to happen. Um, yeah. And it's probably going to happen within our lifetimes. And that's really disturbing. Uh, so when a writer, and, and admittedly, Kim Stanley Robinson is a very sensitive writer to other cultures, or at least he makes every effort to be. Uh, when he writes a story like that, it doesn't have the kind of cultural authenticity that a South Asian writer would have for the same story. But it's an awareness mm -hmm. that that perspective is as important as anyone else's perspective. And when I say the age of perspective... What I mean is that we're not just talking about um, different people of uh, of different nationalities from different parts of the world, of, of, of different uh, genders and so forth and so on writing science fiction, but science fiction is validating those points of view. So that, here, here's an example. Uh, 
one example is, um, let's start with The Thing. Let's start with Who Goes There by John W. Campbell, who is now a problematic individual in all sorts of ways. But let's face oh, it. Can I just interject and just let, let's take out the end now? I suspect he was problematic then. Um, well, okay. This may be before. We, I, 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 I've read Alec Neville Lee's book, and, and even Alec doesn't spend a lot of time talking about Campbell before he became the editor. But the Campbell who wrote Ho- Who Goes There wrote yeah. a terrific science fiction horror story, which has lived for, gosh, getting close to 90 years now, I guess. Um, but so Who Goes There becomes The Thing in 1951, which becomes John Carpenter's The Thing. And then, and then you get uh, Sam Miller's Things with Beards, uh, which is sort of an uh, sort, sort, sort of an LGBTQ take on the thing. You get uh, Peter Watts's Things, uh, the things, yeah, the things, which is looking at that from the perspective of the alien. So what I think is interesting is you've got this sort of classic sort of science fiction uh, scenario reimagined. Uh, from a from a uh, from a from an AIDS perspective, from a gay perspective, reimagined from the alien perspective, that science fiction suddenly is realizing that there are other perspectives other than the white male heroes of early science fiction. Uh, that maybe maybe the alien who was you know gobbling up all those people in in the Antarctic, at least in the movies, maybe that alien had a point. Uh, <laughs> Okay, that's amusing, though. <laughs> to know. Uh, I think what I think what you're touching on, and we're circling around, we've probably touched on before because we do nothing but repeat mm-hmm. ourselves. Um, is the, the you know to me the, the question I used to ask about the age of perspective, if you yeah. like, is what does adding the perspective add? And sometimes, at various times, it felt like it added nothing other than just something for a group of readers to identify with, which was always valuable and not yes, adjust. That's true. But nonetheless, was not necessarily something that the rest of the community uh, would respond to, the reading community might respond to. What we're finding now, and actually in perhaps appreciating more in retrospect as well with those texts, is that actually there's something fundamentally beneficial to it there, something fundamentally different that, that that change in perspective gives us. So when you say, mm-hmm. well, let's do, just do a gender swap three musketeers or something, right? Right. Well, uh, th- then it's like, well, now then what do you get? Do you get something substantially different? Does it say something substantially different? Uh, just recently, there was a new adaptation of the Nick Hornby novel High Fidelity. Mm-hmm. Now, High Fidelity was adapted into a film with John Cusack and Jack Black and... Lisa Bonet, and good movie, really good movie. Mm-hmm. And they just they had adapted it into a television series earlier this year, which came out through one of the networks. Yeah, I didn't see with, that. Um, Zoe Kravitz, Lena, Lisa Bonet's daughter in it, and they didn't add anything. I mean, I mean, honestly, they added nothing. It, I just it frustrated me so much because they they didn't attempt to adapt what the lead character would do to who the lead character intrinsically was. And that's where I think inclusion is done not well. What I think it's done well is when you take this, the story, like in this case, about a, a self-obsessed person who's got no idea about the way they're traveling through relationships, which in some ways is what high fidelity uh-huh. is about. It's got, a, it's got that uh, 
uh, level across the top of it about record shops and crazy collecting and stuff. Um, if you don't change, if you, if you adapt that into how the, that this character, if they were different, would actually respond, mm-hmm. then you get something really interesting and substantive. Which is, and I think, yes. it, yeah. Okay. I know. I, I think that's exactly right. I think perspective isn't simply a matter of, of changing point of view or trying to make more inclusive points of view. Uh, this shift in perspective is a way of interrogating what science fiction has always done saying some of the classic themes of science fiction may not be exactly what you thought they were. I think one of the classic works, I think one of the seminal works in the shift, in defining a shift in perspective in science fiction, is James Tiptree's story, The Women Men Don't See, which is an mm-hmm. alien contact story. But it's an alien yeah. contact story in which alien contact, contact with absolute aliens looks more attractive than women trying to deal with the corporate with the corporate overlords with the men <laughs> in the world in which they live. It's an astonishing story, and it it's a story which I've taught before, and is what forty years old now, fifty years old. Um, it still stuns people when they see it, uh, because what it does is it takes a very familiar scenario and say, if you look at it from a different perspective, it's a completely different story from what you thought it was, and yeah. to some extent, uh, to some extent, you can see that shift in perspective being something that science fiction touched upon as far back as, let me see, I mean, as, as far back as H.G. Wells. I mean, yeah. if, you go, if you go back to the War of the Worlds, now War of the Worlds was, okay, this is, this is me being an academic for a second, but it's fine because people are used to that. Um, yeah. Well, okay, England had been haunted by alien invasion stories for for a decade for two decades before the war of the worlds came out there was the battle of dorking england was going to get invaded by germans it was going to get invaded by french it was going to get invaded by asians and chinese and japanese and god knows who it was such a genre that that pg woodhouse one of my personal heroes actually wrote a novel in which every country in the world by coincidence decided decided to in, invade England on the same day and yeah. they were defeated by a troop of, 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 of Boy Scouts. So the point is, this is the context in which Wells wrote a novel in which colonization is something that happens to us. It's something that happens to England. England mm-hmm. has to deal with what it feels like to be colonized for a while anyway. And he, he doesn't really have an answer to that. His answer to that turns out to be germs, which is you know, let's face it, kind of a cop-out. But nevertheless, it was a shift in perspective. It was mm-hmm. a shift uh, from, from England, the colonizers, the, 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 the grand English empire, to England, the colonized. And that kind of shift, when it happens in science fiction, reinvents the whole field. Um, yeah. Like I say, when uh, I mean, one of the most thoroughly enjoyable of Nettie Okorafer's novels is Lagoon, which in involves an alien invasion in, uh, alien invasion mm-hmm. in Lagos. Um, and simply by the fact that you're dealing with a city which has been subject not only to repeated colonizations, but to repeated uh, government problems uh, of its own, it looks a little bit different. Like maybe the aliens, eh, maybe we should take another look at them. <laughs> I will say, I, I'm almost tempted to suggest that we should commence a project gary mm-hmm. you and i don't do well with projects so we may not do this but and we won't do it in this conversation it'll be something to come back to in a future episode uh i wonder if we should attempt to identify 
the key texts at novel length of science fiction and fantasy, I guess, to be fair, because the way things change, of the 21st century, from, from 2000... 21st century, from 2000... From 2000 to 2020. I mean, it's like, you have to look at the Nora Jemison trilogy as a fundamental key work of the Absolutely. 21st century yeah. in science fiction, right? So then what sits in its arc and what are the other things that get you from whatever you want to put your finger on in 2000, that is the beginning of, or 2001, depending how you want to date, it doesn't really matter to me. Say 2001, from 2001 till now, what, what is the key work? You know, there was a time where it felt like maybe one particular writer was going to be a dominant voice. Mm -hmm. You know, I, we haven't heard anything new really from Paolo Bacigalupi in a few years, but obviously when the wind up girl came out, yeah. it looked like he was going to be the Gibson of our time. And whilst he is still a fine writer and still doing interesting work, I'm not sure that's quite how that played out. Um, we have at a sort of internal level in science fiction fandom and everything else, survived the mat, you know, the, the, the chaos of, you know, the, the, you know, the sad puppies who at the end mm. of the day probably contributed more to the field than they really, really intended. Um, and, you know, it's like, so how do you get around? Like is a book like Blackfish Shitty, which is one of my favorite books of the last 10 years, mm. you know, the Sam Miller novel, is that a key text is something like, um, uh, Charlie Jane Anders, The City in the Middle of the Night, which is an acclaimed book of the, of the moment, one of those texts. Or will it, do we think it's likely to be? Because I realize time is too fresh to really know, right? It is. Uh, but you can say something about 2000 to 2010 outside of what simply won awards. And then from 2010 till now, you can sketch out that it looks like it. And you can see that, I mean, like you can plainly see if you look at what's coming out right now. There are, I mean, people are still working, for example, in space opera. They're trying different things in space yeah. opera. If you look at what um, Elizabeth Baird did with Ancestral Night last mm -hmm. year and continues this year with Machine, what Arcadie Martin was doing in A Memory Called Empire, uh, in a bunch of other books, you can see that things are going on. I mean, look at what uh, Martha Wells is doing with Murderbot, and, right. you know, which is, I mean, on one hand, it feels like this marvelous kind of cozy story, but actually has stuff in it, right? I mean, it's not devoid of uh, crunchy ideas and thoughts and stuff that they're trying to do. And space opera remains always the key form of the field in some ways, you know? So what happened, I think when you see shifts in space opera, you see shifts in science fiction. I think that one of, the things, well, one of the dangers of getting into that kind of question is that I've pretty much always been wrong when I thought something was going to change the field completely. I mean, well, I, but I think that's okay. I mean, I think, you know, having a contemporary conversation where you go, I think that's going to change the field. And then you can look back and go, huh, that didn't change the field. You know, well, if you'd said to me on whatever year it came out, because it, it escapes me right at the very second, mm -hmm. that if you'd said to me six months after the wind up girl came out, that mm -hmm. it would not be a pivotal changing text, even though it was a, an, an awarded book for the moment. If you told me in 2004 that when, Accelerando by Charles Strauss came out in 2005, yeah. which I think is the timing roughly. I may be wrong. Uh, I would have said, of course, that's going to be a fundamental changing text. And it wasn't. I mean, it was good. The stories remain good. And Charlie's terrific. But that, that, story, that book was not that, that keystone text. And there's something to learn looking back right. at, key, at keystone texts that weren't keystone texts, you know. 
and, well, and try to look at what actually was and what the, what does that say that that shift in expectation because if there's anything that i've learned during 10 years of talking on this podcast mm-hmm. 10 years of talking on the podcast if years. there's anything that i've learned from watching the field for 30 years is there's a significant difference between what i expect and what happens a significant difference between what i think is going to be important and what proves to be and that every time you try to look at that uh, realistically and you know sort of with perspective you learn something well i think this has something to do with what i mean when i say i i'm completely wrong about these things uh there are there are game-changing books i'm it's hard to tell what's game changing. I thought, for example, when uh, oh, when David Marasek's first stories came out in his first couple of novels, that this is a completely bizarre way of looking at the future that's utterly convincing. I thought when um, Hanu Rayanyemi's the, the Quantum Thief came out, I thought this is a completely different way of looking at the future, uh, borrowing deliberately borrowing plots from you know like mystery novels of the past. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and they remain interesting, and they may have had some kind of influence here and there. I remember when Nalo Hopkinson came along, I thought, this is a kind of Caribbean magic realism, science fiction, dystopia, horror, science fiction blend. I'm going all the way back. It's <laughs> uh, a lot of door. mixing and blending there, Gary. <laughs> she, you know, all that stuff is in her, her first novel. Um, and there's no doubt that, that Nalo has had influence, that that Ryan Yemi has had influence that uh, going back even a couple of decades before that, Greg Egan seemed to be out to change the field utterly. Um, and I think in some ways he did, but I don't think that literary change happens in science fiction the way it used to. This f- field is too big. So that the idea, for example, uh, a, a lot of Egan's key ideas about um, downloading personalities into micro that sort of thing that idea has become fairly common uh, but it's no longer it's not a movement it's not as though this yeah. is a new kind of thing um, the the kind of neo post-colonial caribbean science fiction that nalo seemed to be writing we see it from karen lord we see it from tobias Bakel. uh it, it's still there uh, but nobody is particularly indebted to anybody else. People borrow from each other cheerfully in all kinds of different ways. Uh, but I don't see, I, I don't know of very many writers today, especially the younger writers, by which I mean almost anybody because everybody's younger than I am. Um, <laughs> I don't see them identifying themselves as part of a movement. I mean, uh, in, in the 1980s, by the end of the 1980s, you could pretty much identify every science fiction writer uh, I don't think I agree with that. Okay, well, I, I don't think what I'm saying you can't just agree that I haven't finished my sentence. Um, All right, finish your sentence, then, then yeah, I'll just break it later. Was, it seemed to me that people spent a large part of the '80s either saying I'm not a cyberpunk, or I'm okay or cyberpunk, or I was a cyberpunk and I'm not anymore. I don't see anybody today identifying themselves with movements in that same way, or identifying themselves against movements in that same way. I think in, 19, in the mid-1980s, a bunch of middle-class white guys were shouting at each other. Now a whole bunch of people are saying, hey, I exist, pay attention to me. That's and that's why it doesn't seem so coherent. That could very that's well be. Literally what I, it, 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 is, that, is that what you were going to disagree with? Uh, probably, or something else, I don't know. But uh, in, in this particular context, uh, you, know, you know, sort of, yeah, I, I think that's it. I think 
I think movements like that are clubhouse things, right? Yeah, yeah. And are. and the more you look back, the more you look back at the art, the discussion of cyberpunk versus uh, th- th- whatever it was. Um, it looks like a clubhouse argument. It really does. And if you look at the the new uh, the, so the new weird and the new space opera, they look less like a clubhouse argument because they're largely less coherent mm. in that way, but they have an echo of it. What you've got now, when I look at it, is I, I don't see an oppositional thing happening as much, or at least I don't pay attention to the opposition. Yeah, I to think you're right. If there's a difference between, if you like, the old status quo and what's happening, the voices of the old status quo aren't necessarily being ignored, though they're maybe being ignored. They're just being seen as being out of date out of touch no longer the thing and i don't see a lot of convincing one of them and it may be the, the fundamental thing because there's a i think that one of the differences may be there is a fundamental difference in the world that backs what's happening in science fiction but um i don't see anything beyond you know get off on my lawn happening when it comes to voicing the change to inclusion or the broadening perspective perspective of the field and even the people who kind of I mean, it, it does feel more. Gen- it feels generational without a coherent anti-voice to it, you know, which is me just babbling, trying to work out how I would. Well, no, it, it. It, it could be there's a, it could be there's a science fiction, and fantasy and horror and this whole kind of umbrella we're talking about, this kind of version of NIMBYism, which is saying, okay, this is you know not in my backyard, but um, I, I what I don't see are people identifying. I don't see. The anxiety of influence, to use a term from Harold Bloom, a, a recently dead literary scholar who did a lot to really raise some interesting discussions about fantasy, at least, because among the writers he included in his canon were people like David Lindsay and John Crowley. But the anxiety of influence was his idea that generations of poets have to destroy and replace the preceding generations of poets. And you saw that in science fiction when Michael Moorcock was writing uh, essays in, in New Worlds in the 19, early 1960s, that science fiction needs to explore inner space. It needs to look like Burroughs and Ballard and that sort of thing. It was basically, let's destroy old science fiction and reinvent it. And Sterling's, Bruce Sterling's essays in Cheap Truth um, in the early 1980s were saying the same thing. Science fiction of the 1970s was dead, was a feat, was... Was, was fat and slobby and, and, and needed to be replaced. I don't see people saying that now in quite those programmatic terms. Do you think that Jeanette Ng's acceptance speech at the Hugo Awards in Dublin was that? Okay, let me, let me say something which might be controversial, which is that Jeanette Ng was dismissing an editor whose name had way outlived his usefulness already. I think historians of science fiction or critics of science fiction pretty much already agreed with what she said about Campbell. That was not news to anybody at the time. Well, no, okay. I don't think that what she said was substantively revolutionary in the sense that um, we weren't aware of problems, even though Campbell's name was still embedded in the field. Mm -hmm. And I also believe that in some ways what happened with Jeanette Ng was more about a tipping point or with her speech, not her, obviously, sorry. Uh, with her speech was that it was a tipping point but i but i think that it was also 
an expression of this process that's happening and to some degree an expression of what you're talking about with an, uh, that anxiety of influence thing. It's that we need to kick off uh, the, 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 the visible chains of the past to go forward. Yeah. We, need to we need to recontextualize history so we understand better what it was so we can continue forward with the kind of science fiction field that we want to see and the kind of stories we want to hear and the kind of people that we want to include. And in this case, when I say the kind of people we want to include, I honestly believe merely anyone who wants to express themselves. I think that's the new benchmark. It's not people like us. It's us. No, I, 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 I agree with that. And I, I agreed with Jeanetting speech at the time. It, 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 what shocked me about it most was how much it shocked people because Campbell had, had pretty much been dismissed by Joanna Russ and Ursula Le Guin. What I don't see today, and you, except in, in some areas, I don't see people dismissing Le Guin. I certainly don't see people dismissing Butler. I, I certainly don't. I don't even see people dismissing, let's say, Greg Bear as yesterday's science fiction. I think there's a sense now that they're, the absolutely venal figures in the history of science fiction are being repudiated, and that's fine. I don't think it's terribly new, but it's, it's about time that people became aware of them. I don't see a sense that science fiction needs to destroy its previous generation. I don't, uh, if anything, Butler is at a high point in her reputation. Uh, Le Guin... Uh, for all her problematical uh, uh, dealing with, with gender issues early in her, her career, is giving is being given a lot of respect for having dealt with that later in her career. So, I, what I don't see now is is a rejection of the immediate preceding generation. It's easy to reject Hugo Gernsback or or John W. Campbell or uh, probably. Uh, I don't know if there's anything bad to say about H.L. Gold. He was apparently a very weird character. But rejecting people from 70 years ago isn't news anymore. I guess not. But what I kind of feel like when I listen to you talk about it is that what it actually is is, is it's the continuation of at least a 40-year-long process oh, absolutely. To, to tear down, well, tear down's dramatic, to contextualize, recontextualize the golden age founding fathers of science fiction. Simply recognizing, you know, I mean, finding out, I mean, Hugo Awards are probably not going to be renamed because no, as far as I know, outside of being a really bad editor who never paid his authors, nobody found anything really awful about Hugo Gernsback and nobody really cares enough about, I was, um, I, I should mention this. I well, setting, should, aside, setting aside the qualities of Hugo Gernsback as a human, I think the real issue is it's probably too hard to change the Hugo the name of the Hugos. It, it, it may be, but he's, he's, he's not really a controversial figure in the sense of... Uh, I, I should mention in parentheses, I'm, I'm currently featured in a Lux, what I believe to be a Luxembourgian documentary film. Uh, oh, you good thing. It will be released. It was filmed. A bunch of us were... This is very embarrassing. Apparently, a bunch, <laughs> a bunch of us were interviewed at LunCon six years ago or something. Okay. And, uh, and so I'm in this film, uh, a, a number of other critics and writers are in the film, and we're all talking about Hugo Gernsback, and we're all talking, all we talk about is how completely unreadable his own fiction is, Ralph 1 to 4, C for 1. But, but I, I guess the difference with Hugo Gernsback is, at no point during my reading lifetime, which stretches back, stretches back in science fiction to the early 1970s, has Gernsback ever seemed remotely 
alive or relevant as a figure in the field. You know, you're aware that he, he edited this magazine in 1926 or whatever it was, and that his name is on the Hugo Awards, and that's it. The other people were much more continuously and contemporaneously involved at different times, had work coming out or whatever else, and were particularly deified. You know, I think that somebody yeah, sure. from, I think, I think somebody from 1970 would be shocked at how her, uh, John W. Campbell is regarded today. Shocked. Um, they would be shocked possibly because the evidence was something you had to dig out in 1970. Mm-hmm. Now it's been made public. I mean, uh, you could make an argument in terms of rethinking the history of science fiction, uh, in America at least, that Alec Nebula Lee's book Astounding is one of the key texts because everything that a lot of people in the field knew or suspected about, uh, about Campbell and, and about Hubbard and about Asimov and so forth uh, was is suddenly documented in a fairly definitive way in that book. Uh, so it's, 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 it's what had been kind of a, a folklore in the field is now part of the documented history of the field. And you can't ignore it once it's there. Um, yeah. I mean, like I said, I started to say something earlier about uh, what do we know about H.L. Gold? He was, as far as I know, the editor of Galaxy in the early 1950s, had a lot to do with the introduction of satirical science fiction, which I think was a big shift in the early 50s, the Frederick Pohl, C.M. Cornbluth, uh, uh, Robert Sheckley kind of thing. All I know about Gold is that he was a terrible agoraphobe. He never left his apartment. He was a very mysterious character. He completely misread Daniel Key's Flowers for Algernon when he got it. But I don't know that he was a venal character, just just a you know sort of harmless weirdo, I think. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Interesting and, times, Gary. I don't know where we're going to go with. I'm amazed we got this far along with it. Well, I mean, it, I mean it, we, were, we started out with, with what uh, science fiction is doing in, in, in terms of uh, diverse perspectives and how editors probably pre prevented that from happening. And we know, for example, that Campbell told Samuel R. Delaney that his readers, Astounding's readers or analog mm. readers at the time, wouldn't identify with the black protagonist, which seems appalling to us today. Um, but I have no doubt that it's absolutely true. But now, if you're going to look at comparative reputations between the, in the history of the field between let's say John W. Campbell and Samuel R. Delaney, who comes out as being the more significant literary force yeah. in the field. That's not, yeah. not, a, not a hard question. Do you think that fantasy is being more thoughtful, experimental, influential than it used to be, to, at least in the, the little pond that we read in? I mean, because I look at the you know, like some of the recent fantasy novels, and certainly there are the big epic fantasy novels that mm. people enjoy coming out all the time. And there are books like a game of Thrones or whatever else, but there are also things like, you know, Levi Tidhar's by force alone or Nora Jemison's the city we became. And I know there's always been interesting, uh, boundary pushing works of fantasy. You know, I mean, this year saw the republication by Tor in their essentials line of, of right. Mythico Wood, you know, but, do you think do you think it's it's doing anything different than it was? I think it is, and I think I'm not terribly aware of it. Um, yeah, 
in, in the sense that uh, some of the, because uh, I don't read a lot of epic fantasy because it tends to come in multiple volumes. This, this, this series of Chakraborty novels that have come out in the last uh, five or six years, for example, look absolutely fascinating. And it seems to me that there's a lot of reimagining of science fiction, of, of, of excuse me, of fantasy novels based not on kind of classic, uh, the kind of classic Nordic-based fantasy that, for example, Tolkien and his descendants came from, or even that Mathago Wood came from. So we are getting fantasy, and you mentioned Saad Hussein. We, we're getting a lot of djinn stories these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, fantasy is showing uh, an awareness of other cultures, and it's an, aware, it's an awareness of other cultures from the perspectives of those cultures, which, again, goes back to perspective because when you look at looking at if you look at non-western uh sources for fantasy you can trace that back to zelazny uh and possibly even earlier um but zelazny was basically an academic looking at uh yeah at, 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 at asian fantasies now we have asian writers looking at asian fantasies from a from a different perspective and i think that's valuable of course do you think that what we're going to find is that the role of, say, the jinn, which you're saying we see more and more, uh-huh. is actually one of those impacts of broader international inclusion in the field? Absolutely. Because having just done the Book of Dragons, that's an archetypal, you know, dragons an mm-hmm. archetypal figure in fantasy or, or ca- character theme mode thing in, in right. fantasy, right? Uh, spaceship and science fiction, swords, blah, blah, blah. The, Jin is not in Western fantasy, but plainly seems to occupy at least a similar, if not greater, role as a figure of change in um, Asian uh, fiction, you know, fantastical thought, whatever you want to call it. I'm articulating it poorly. But you know, it'll be interesting to see how that then stretches in because when I look at the themes and images, which been interesting it's been interesting doing something like the Book of Dragons because it's such an archetypal thing to talk about dragons. Mm-hmm. But it feels like right now Jin are uh, coming into the field from more. There's always been something there, but yeah, more than it had in the past. And more I mean, I'm very I have to be careful here because I'm not trying to speak ill of anyone. Mike Resnick did a lot of African-influenced yeah. stories told from the perspective effectively of someone from the West looking in. There have been stories of jinn uh, and anthologies of jinn stories and whatever else done yeah. in uh, you know, the West before, but the stuff that's coming now feels different. And, you know, the, you know, and it's interesting to see how that manifests well, and plays through. One of the things I think I've learned from uh, from one of our... I think I think we share this as one of our current favorite writers, even though I've only read a few things by him, Saad Hussein, whose Jin City is. Uh, I, I think there's a sense of being able to play with these mythologies, or to be more playful with these mythologies. I mean, Saad Hussein is a very, very funny writer, and his jinns are very yeah. funny characters. And I wonder if Western writers trying to be sensitive to another culture basically wouldn't have the nerve to do the sort of things that a that Assad Hussein would do with the same figures. Maybe so. I, 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 don't I don't know that at all. I think the other thing that's, uh, I've just noticed this this year because one of the books which I know you and I uh, both admire, forthcoming book, which I'll be writing a review of in, shortly, um, is The Once and Future Witches. Um, yeah. And it's the third or fourth 
which book I've read. So, so witches have always had kind of a, uh, a amb ambiguous role, and it's very easy to write a set of feminist witches. But we're writing, we're getting with with um, with this novel, and with um, Liz Williams' novels, with uh, uh, Molly Tanzer novels, we're getting witches who are much more complicated, interesting characters that are not simply feminist versions of ancient witches, but witches that represent a kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, feminine knowledge and tradition that has gone unrecognized in earlier portraits of witches. So I, th I think one of the things when we talk about the expansion of fantasy into different cultural perspectives in parallel to science fiction, gins are one example of that. I think witches are having a great year. I think witches are having a real comeback in fiction. <laughs> well, I think we'll come back to that another point because we're just we're getting towards the end of the hour, Gary. So we probably should wind up. I mean, I haven't been reading anything particularly new right in the last couple of weeks because I've been caught up in some other stuff. Been doing a lot of editing. Uh, got to get a whole bunch of locus columns through. We've got. <sighs> probably got some some prep to do for the next few uh podcasts now that we're talking about 21st century science fiction together right and to see who we might talk to about that as well it might bring an interesting voice might be interesting to talk to uh, raise the issue with some of our critic friends to see what kind of perspective they'd bring in and chat with them because of course this week should see the end of the consecutive 100 episode series of 10 minutes with um so yeah interesting well, times we should probably explain that ending the continuous daily grind which we've been doing since march doesn't mean the end of the 10 minute podcast no, no. I'm, I'm sure that you and i are both having as much fun doing oh, sure. this, uh, as anybody else but um what i'm what i'm looking at for the for the near future i was just thinking of in the august issue well i don't think this is a secret to anybody because the august issue will include a review of Paranasi of the new Susanna Clark novel. There's a new M. John Harrison novel. There's a new collection of M. John Harrison selected stories coming out, probably not for a few weeks, according to M. John Harrison himself. There's a this, the Trouble with Peace, the new Joe Abercrombie novel. Uh, there's the collaboration between Michael Swanwick and Gardner Duzois, uh, the mm -hmm. city under the stars. The new Kim Stanley Robinson novel. I mentioned the Once in Future Witches, which I should have mentioned is Alex Harrow's novel. Uh, a new P. Jelly Clark novel, which I have on my iPad somewhere. I have not started looking at. A new Jonathan Lethem novel, which looks very science fictional or at least very fantasy kind of. Um, it looks like a really promising late summer and fall for the field. It's going to be really interesting. The other thing that's going to be really interesting is that the... And we should say this, you know, the voting for the Hugos finally goes online this coming week. And it's being it is, I think, I think it is the latest commencement of online voting I can ever remember. And the longest difference in time between uh, postal voting and online voting. Right. Because, you know, that came out. And I actually think it's going to have a real impact on the awards and what wins the awards in the end. Why will it have an impact? I'm curious. Okay, I don't know if you've been looking at the world around you, Gary, for the last three months, no, but things have, things have been happening. Things have been happening. Things have been happening in the world around us, Gary. And I think that the things that, that are happening in the world around us will impact on how we think about what we're, what we're looking at when we, when we vote. 
Uh, and so I do think there's a good chance that it will impact. I don't know that you'll ever be able to de concretely determine exactly how, but if you th think about it, the print ballot started in mid or late April, and a lot happened in May and June. True. And now it's July, and there's going to be this little tiny window where between like July 8 or something, yeah. 7th or 8, and the day before the convention starts, when you know we're all voting, yeah, the online voting, uh -huh. we should point out, they've extended the deadline because of the late start. So the deadline is what, the end of July or something like that? Yeah, and I guess they realized that they don't actually need the results much before then because right. even you know, even when they're done, you know, then they have the nominees and everything, or they have the winners and they know the winners, that kind of thing. As long as they have them in time for Saturday at 7 a.m. Perth time, they're good. So they're going to be playing an interesting game of brinksmanship. Well, well, let, let me get this clear. Your theory is that uh, it has to be something to do with the uh, coronavirus, that that will somehow affect later voting. I think okay, I think there's a whole bunch of things. I think people have been shut in. I think people have had access to the Hugo packet and they're reading, so that's a good thing. Sure, that's I true. think that um, most of the voters for the Hugo Awards are living in North America, right? Can you think of any things that have happened in the last eight weeks that might impact how people would feel when they vote for the Hugos? I certainly can. <laughs> yeah, I see. I, I, I guess I see what you're saying. You know, and I, I can't tell you that I think it's a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I think it's an interesting thing. I, I guess one of the things that has almost never happened before, when you're looking at the Hugos uh, and, and you're looking at the world around you, it's very seldom that there's been such a potentially close linkage between the world you're living in and the science fictional worlds that you see portrayed in the Hugo nominees. Very true. Um, so to that extent, I think you're probably right. I think people are looking at certain novels from last year and thinking, holy, well, okay, holy fill in your noun. Uh, but... <laughs> and I guess one thing I'd like to say to people out there, you know, this episode of the podcast that you're listening to is the 108th episode of the Cood Street podcast that we have recorded in 2020. It is four years worth of episodes in four months, sort of thing, just about. We need to stop inflicting these on people because they're going to suffer for it in the long run. I think I think people like them. I think people what? like them, Gary. The, 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 the um, we should we should mention people. Let us know what you think about these uh, ten minutes with. I mean, we may change around the questions we ask and so forth. But the 10, yeah, yeah. 10 to fifteen minute podcasts have been enormous fun for me to do. Yeah, yeah me too. And and, and, and but, it, it doesn't mean they're going away. It means that the daily grind of talking to people, uh, most of whom have been absolutely delightful to talk to. Uh, it may not be daily anymore, but that doesn't mean the 10-minute podcast will disappear. I guess what I was going to say, though, Gary, was this. After 108 episodes of, of Coot Street for 2020, with all their variations and changes and da-da-da-da, I realized that we're only talking about 20-something episodes from 2019. But if you've enjoyed what we're doing... Think kindly of us come Hugo voting time. We'd like that. Oh, there is the Hugo thing. Yes, there is that, isn't there? Well, that's 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 delightful. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to the online Hugo ceremony. I'm sure that you have received emails as other people who are members of 
uh, Conzeal and have received emails. Uh, they're making what appears to be a heroic effort to turn uh, turn this into a positive online experience. Uh, from what I can tell, the Nebula's online was surprisingly successful. Everybody was uh, very pleased with the Nebula committee and, and, and Mary Robinette Kowal for being able to bring that off. I thought the Locus Awards weekend uh, came across very well. Uh, the Locus Awards yeah. ceremony with Connie Willis and and, and Daryl Gregory, and I was on a panel discussion there, as were some uh, other uh, writers. So it's it's possible to do an interesting online convention, and let's hope that the um, uh, the the Zealand people are able to bring this off as well as everybody else has. Sounds good. But for the moment, this has been for an hour or so, as it always has been, lo these many years. The Cood Street Podcast. <laughs>